0: between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard to the tree of life. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You can be seated.
1: Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. The psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. Indeed, Lord, we pray in like manner. We ask that you might hear us cry out to you. Today we are considering Adam and Eve's temptation and sin, and we realize how the patterns are repeated every day in our own lives. Satan has no new strategies, nor does he need them. We are often easy prey because our hearts and minds are careless. We're easy marks for temptation because our eyes and hearts are unguarded. May You speak clearly and emphatically into our lives this morning, that You might show us our vulnerabilities to temptation, that You might show us the ways that we sabotage our own communion with You. Show us the path to prepare and discipline for being faithful. Help us to realize, Father, the seriousness of apathy toward unrighteousness. Help us to understand the value of godliness in every aspect of life. Help the one, Lord, today who is outside your saving grace. May that person recognize their place of enmity before you. May the hopelessness of sin, death, and hell weigh mightily upon their soul. Lord, I pray that your spirit might bring clarity and conviction and transformation. Equip us all with a great urgency for the gospel. Give us eyes that see the numerous people around us who are perishing. Use this church, Lord, to proclaim and to display your gospel hope. For today we are mindful a special designation for mothers. And we're grateful, Lord, for your plan, for your pattern, for the way that you created us, men and women, in your image to be fruitful, to fill this earth with more image bearers for your glory. We're grateful Lord, for the investment that our parents have in us, mothers who nurture and care and cultivate and teach, and we pray that the fruit that shows itself in our lives might be in keeping with all of that diligent investment, and that today we would be mindful Lord, of how men and women are designed to work in complementary fashion, being equal, being true image bearers of your glory in this world. And that we, as your people, might hold up this example unapologetically, faithfully, powerfully for your honor and glory in this world. And we pray. That you bless our time together here. Take your word, Lord, and penetrate our hearts. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we have been making this journey through Genesis. And uh, I didn't plan that we would be in this particular passage on this particular day. I never do those things intentionally. But God tends to arrange things as he would have them be carried out. And so we are talking about not Proverbs 31, but we're talking about Genesis 3. We're talking about temptation and sin and failure. But don't give up because at the end of the chapter we see the promise and the blessing of God that will come through the woman, he says. And I want you to hear today that sin first and foremost, was laid at the feet of Adam, not Eve, though she bears responsibility equally with Adam, but not alone apart from Adam. A quick review. God has spoken everything that is into existence, the matter, the raw materials, and then he formed it. Everything after its own kind, the text tells us, For six days God worked and then he sanctified the seventh day, set it apart as holy unto himself, and he rested. He created humankind in more detail rendered here in chapter 2. The first chapter is a broad overview. The second chapter is a double click, if you will, zooming in on primarily the creation of mankind, Eden. It was a significant geographical area, not just the narrow idea that we have when we think of Eden. For God says that he planted the garden in Eden. That they're not synonymous as much as the garden exists in Eden. And he gives instruction to the man, work it, keep it, that is cultivate it, nurture it, take care of it for God's glory. And in the middle, he put a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're told. And one stipulation that God gave, one law that God gave to humankind, and that is, don't eat from this tree. So he formed woman from man, indicating that they are the exact same substance. One is not more valuable than the other. They complement one another. She is called his helper. A term that God uses to describe Himself when referring to His relationship with His people. He gives instruction to them, multiply, fill creation with God's image bearers. And she is called Eve. Why? Because, Scripture says here, that she will be the mother of all living. The mother of all living. Even in the midst, in the shadow of this death that we see Acted out before us in this third chapter, God leaves us at the end with this promise that life, life is His to give and He will continue to give it. His covenant is not thwarted by man's failure in the garden. Creation is a temple, a temple whereby man communes with God, where he bears God's image in a glorifying fashion for all creation to observe. And the scripture says at the end of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, if only the story had ended there. If only the last statement would have been, and they lived happily ever after. That's the way you and I would have written it, right? But that's not the way that it happened. I wish that I didn't have to spend time in the third chapter of Genesis. It's not a pleasant story. It's not a pleasant truth to consider. But it begins, now the serpent, now the serpent. Who is this serpent? Well, Revelation 12 verse 9 tells us that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. For those that don't believe in such things, well, the Lord of God, the Lord God Himself takes issue with that. He says He does exist. and it prompts a lot of questions that people are apt to ask. Many of you probably will ask these same questions over lunch later. Where did He come from? Why is he here? If everything is perfect, if it's paradise on earth, if God has created this temple for communion with man, How did Satan and sin end up here? Well, a lot of these questions remain questions. We don't have answers for everything. But let's think a little bit about what we do know. Scripture tells us that he was initially an angelic being. At some point, he rebelled and sinned against God. Jude 6 says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority... Listen to that carefully. God did not spare these angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Why did these angelic beings sin? The popular and modern thought is that free will. Free will is a necessity here. That you have to have uh, moral freedom in order to not reduce created beings to some sort of machine or robot. Well, this still doesn't answer the question. It only kicks the can further down the road. Why did any holy angel sin? Well, at the end of the day, we have to conclude that God had a gracious And wise purpose in all of this. Some holy angels sinned because their fall set in motion this history of redemption. That would fulfill the infinitely wise purposes of God in creation. All for his glory. And some of that information, a lot of that information is just not privy to us. We're not open. It's not necessary for what we do, what we say, what we think. We have to defer to God in these matters. Romans eleven thirty three says, All the unsearchable judgments and all the inscrutable ways of God flow from the depths of His wisdom. Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are Your works in wisdom! Have You made them all! The earth is full of Your creatures. Romans sixteen twenty seven tells us that He is the only wise God. And Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. It was and is a gracious purpose that God is at work bringing about. His plan before the creation was spoken into existence was to show grace to unworthy sinners. Sin came into being as part of the plan to show grace. This grace to sinners and to manifest God's glory. Now, it's important for us to ask, what is sin? What is sin? Let me say to you today that sin is not a thing. Sin is not a thing. According to Romans chapter 1, sin is lawlessness. Sin is the absence of godliness or righteousness. It's an attitude. It's a posture that is anti-God, that is against God, that disobeys God, that rebels against God. Sin did not need to be created. The only thing you needed in order to have sin was for God to exist. And Scripture tells us that God exists from before the foundations of the world throughout all of eternity. He has always existed. So what do we know? A holy angel came to prefer self-exaltation over God's exaltation. He fell into an attitude of delusion, thinking that he ultimately could self-determine as a finite being, he could self-determine where he was headed, what he would do, how he would be. And he concluded in his thinking... That this was preferable to submitting to God. And yet, this fall was part of God's all-wise plan. It didn't catch him off guard. It's not a backup plan. It's not a safety net that God constructed hurriedly to keep men from perishing. It was sovereignly, providentially included in His perfect plan. Sovereignly, providentially included in God's plan. Now, how did God, how did he see fit to carry this out without himself sinning and without turning Satan into a machine? I simply don't know the answer to that question. And I would venture you don't either. We don't have this information available to us. This is above our pay grade. God has decided some things are just not necessary for us to sort out. It's not important for our place in redemption history. So the second thing that appears here is we see temptation. Temptation unfolds. We've got this serpent who has Satan working in him and through him. How this came about, we're not exactly sure. But he begins to work in this serpent who was a part of God's creation. A part of the creation that I remind you that God said is very good. We have no insight as to why the serpent was used in this drama. We simply defer to God's wisdom. As part of the good creation, the serpent, his presence there would not have caused any alarm toward Adam and Eve. But... I would suggest that maybe something was up. Why Adam and Eve didn't understand or become alarmed that the serpent was having a conversation with them? That may be a question worth asking. Some have speculated that the serpent was a beautiful, attractive creature that maybe stood upright at the time. We don't have that information either. What we do know is that Satan is a deceiver. He never shows himself for what he is, and that is the personification of evil. He is evil incarnate. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He makes himself appear attractive. John 8.44 Jesus said, you are, he was talking to the religious leaders there of that day that were trying to trap him, trying to accuse him. And he said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do as your father's desires. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His character is the essence of evil. He cannot do anything but evil. Jesus, I remind you, said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what is in the heart is what comes out of the mouth. If you had one of those encounters with someone who said something hurtful to you and then said, I really didn't mean what I said, that's not really who I am. Well, you have to say, oh, yes, it is. (laughs) I'm afraid Jesus said what comes out of the mouth is what's in the heart. Everything Satan says is evil. It's poisonous. It's vile. It's untrue. And he approaches God's image bearers, including you and I. He portrays himself as our benefactor, as he did with Eve and Adam in this situation. He portrays himself as one who has come to their rescue, accusing God. God is denying you, he says. You cannot trust God. God's in it for himself. He doesn't care about you. Friends, Adam and Eve were living in paradise. (laughs) Absolute perfection. It doesn't matter what you think you've experienced on this earth. No matter how good it is, no matter how good it's been at any particular time, it's never been as good as it was then. They had no needs. They had no lack of anything. Hear his icy words. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God planted the garden. Now Satan has come along and is sowing the tares of discord and temptation. Eve answered. She answered correctly, but not accurately. Loosely. She was handling her doctrine very loose. She said, No. God said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, I would subject to you that this tree had a name. What was the name? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by its own name, it is a deterrent and a warning sign to the danger that lurked there. But she doesn't use the name. She says the tree there in the center of the garden, loose, playing loose with the doctrine. The tree had an identity. It had a name, and there was a reason behind that. Then she added her own stipulation to God's name, and neither shall we touch it. We shall not touch it. Well, God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. God said, we will die. Bah! Satan says, you can't trust what God says. Yeah, God serves his own purpose by... By intimidating you with this conjecture that die? You're not going to die. God's holding out on you. Your eyes will be opened and you can be like God. Isn't this amazing? When I read the scripture, I find out they are like God. Didn't he create them in his image? (laughs) You see how subtle he is? You already have this. But there's something better. God's denying you. He sows doubt, slander, mistrust, and he immediately gets her attention. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, suddenly she feels deprived. She had everything. She had the world in its finest state, in its best condition, in its fullest provision. She had it all. And she felt deprived. Satan's strategy is on display here. And it's important for us to consider it. There are five things I want to just briefly, in passing, point out to you. These are things I would encourage you to meditate on and study on as you're seeking to live out your life for Christ or as you're entertaining the gospel. Five ways that Satan opposes you with his strategy. One, he is deceptive. He's always lying. Always lying. This is why it's so important, so critical to remain in God's truth and to hold anything else to the standard of God's truth. Secondly, he challenges the authority of God's word. Thirdly, he attacks and slanders God's character, God's goodness. God's denying you. God's not for you. God's not working on your behalf. Fourthly, he minimizes and contradicts God's judgment. You're not going to die. And fifthly, he promises pleasure and ignores pain. He never offers to talk about the consequences of disobeying God. Then this gives way to sin, disobedience, and rebellion. There it is, the anti-God position, posture, attitude. Eve took the fruit that God had forbidden and she ate it. The most powerful statement in this is that she turned and gave to Adam, who was there all the time. Adam completely abdicated his role. He failed to obey God's instruction and fulfill his calling, his assignment, to be in guardianship over all that God had made. What was he assigned to do? To subdue creation, to keep it, to govern over it as God instructed for the glory of God. That God might be worshipped and glorified. Now, I've got some questions for you today. Why did Adam allow Satan to persist in using the serpent? He had the power to stop it. God had given it to him. God gave him the authority over everything. Why didn't Adam stop it? He could have vanquished the enemy from the garden. Why did Adam not stop Satan's conversation with Eve? Why didn't he just say, hey, time out, mister, you're lying. You're lying yourself silly here. You just need to leave. He had the authority. And the power to do so. Why did Adam not correct Eve's loose thinking, her loose doctrine? Eve, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't say we shouldn't touch it. He said we can't eat of it. Why did Adam not stop her from eating the fruit? Why did Adam not refuse her offer to join in the rebellion? So for those who have, you guys maybe have thought that you were off the hook here or that, you know, it's the woman. It's the woman's fault. You used that excuse before. Even joking around, well, you got to kick that out. Adam's responsible here. This is why he's the one that's held responsible. God's instruction, note, God's instruction is completely ignored by all of creation. The animal was leading the woman, the woman was leading the man, and the man had abdicated his assignment from God. Everything was out of sorts, and sin strolled into the garden unabated. Into the garden and into the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. The connection is clear, is it not? Lust of eyes, lust of flesh, pride of life. He goes on in verse 17 of that same chapter, It contrasts the lust of the flesh, with its more desirable counterpart, pleasing God. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. If we follow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we cannot do the will of God. And therefore, we cannot inherit the kingdom of life. Now, those who have been born again by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus will continually put to death... The deeds of the flesh. Romans 8, 12-14. Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Doing so, we will not allow the lust of our flesh to control our lives. Rather, we will choose to consider ourselves crucified with Christ, so that we might live for the glory of God. I want to think just a moment about these terms, these phrases, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. A lust of the eyes is the sinful desire to possess what we see. To possess what we see. Eve saw the tree looked good to her. It appealed to her. It delighted her vision. This coveting, it may be money, possessions, or other physical things, is not from God, but from the world around us. John emphasizes that these physical things do not last, they pass away. But the child of God is guaranteed eternity. The Ten Commandments address the lust of the eyes in the prohibition against coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is a desire to have people, possessions, or status. Part of the reason Eve listened to the serpent was that she looked at the forbidden fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eye. Instead of hiding behind God's word, God's warning, God's stipulation, she started to entertain what her eyes saw. Satan tried a similar tactic on Jesus. Out of his, one of his temptations was an attempt to make Jesus covet earthly power. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and then promised to give them to Jesus for a price. Jesus did not succumb to the lust of the eyes, and Satan was defeated. We all follow Jesus' example in the Spirit and resist the lust of the eyes. This is our mandate. Because the world is full of eye candy, glamour, and gaudiness. Materialism is always beckoning to us with promises of happiness and fulfillment but failing to share with us what the pain, what the dangers really are. We live in a media-saturated society that bombards us with advertising that essentially says, come covet me. All that glitters is not gold, Proverbs says. And the child of God knows that fame, fortune, and finery quickly fade. Should our focus be on the newest product or latest fashion or on something else? Yes, it should be on something else. It should be on God and His promises, His truth. Fighting and pushing back against the things that this world presses toward us. Our goal is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. The lust of the eyes occurs when we see something that incites covetousness and jealousy, or even sexual lust. The pride of life. The pride of life is the desire of every human being to be his or her own God. Arrogance, self-promotion, greed, all stem from the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is also one of the foes that we fight against. What's it? When the Bible refers to the flesh, it's talking primarily about the desires... Coupled with the flesh of who we are living in this existence, living in this world, the the propensity to sin that is within each of us. When fleshly desires rule us, they cause us to violate God's righteousness. They become lusts, insatiable lusts. Hunger. Hunger prompts us to eat food, doesn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with eating food. Where is the problem? The problem is in an unhealthy relationship with food, isn't it? The problem is when we have more than we need and we engage in gluttony, so much so that it endangers even our lives. The same is true with other physical desires in the bodies, sexual desires turn perverse that lead to homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and, otherly, and other sexually related sins. Those are lusts of the flesh. Eve coveted the fruit in three ways they appealed to her appetite. The lust of the flesh, the the fruit also was pleasing or delightful to the eye, which we see and desire to own or possess. And Eve somehow perceived that the fruit would make her wise, even making her like God. She wanted to be like God in this moment, in her knowledge, not content to live in a perfect world under His perfect grace and care for her. Isn't this always the heart of sin? It's the failure to trust God's provision, God's promise, God's character, instead thinking that we need to enter in and do for ourselves. Satan used these same three temptations against Christ. But for us, thankfully for us, Christ resisted. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam failed in a lush garden where everything was made available for him, to care for him. Christ succeeded in the wilderness. We might even call that the home field advantage for the enemy. Where all of his fleshly needs were weakened. He would have been susceptible and vulnerable to temptation, but he stood against them. Satan doesn't change his methods. He doesn't have to because the ones he uses are highly successful. He tempts us with lust of the flesh, sexual gratification, gluttony, excessive alcohol consumption, drugs, both legal and illegal, trying to cope with a life that is stress-filled, painful. He tempts us regarding the deeds of the flesh about which Paul warned the Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He tempts us with the lust of the eyes, the endless accumulation of stuff with which we fill our homes and, yes, our garages and the insatiable desire for more, better, and newer possessions. I had a friend years ago that was in ministry. He confessed to me one day that he was in financial trouble. I said, How did you get in financial trouble? He said, I have an insatiable appetite for the newest thing when it comes to technology computers, software, all that stuff. And he said, I've run up a bill that I can't pay. They were garnishing his wages. Always lurking, always knocking on the door. The most evil temptation is the pride of life, the very sin that resulted in Satan's expulsion from heaven. He desired to be God, not be a servant under God. Arrogant boasting that constitutes the pride of life motivates the other two lusts. It seeks to elevate itself above all others and fulfill all personal desires it's the root cause of strife in family in church in everything in this world it exalts self in direct contradiction to Jesus' statement that those who would follow him must take up their cross and die daily the pride of life stands in our way if we truly seek to be servants of god it's always going to be in the way Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and something to be desired. These three references concern the appeal of beauty. Now, there's nothing wrong with beauty. But if you think about it, everything that attracts you is something that is beautiful, at least in reality or perception. It appears to be beautiful, and you're drawn to it. And the reason we fall into temptation and sin is because we are drawn to that which is beautiful without the righteousness of God which is what Adam and Eve chose to do here they embraced the temptation choosing to reject being in submission to God being righteous in God They abused their privilege because they didn't love righteousness. And the beauty was taken away from them. Now, this is bad news, right? I mean, the worst news is coming. But verse 6 is about as bad as it gets. That Eve rebelled against God. Adam rebelled against God. And sin came into the world. And with sin, in spite of what they immediately saw Death came in with it. Death, hell, judgment of God is sure to come. I don't want to leave you there. Because we're going to have to spend more time here next week, right? Next week will be much better. But I don't want to just leave you here all week. Because God gives this glorious promise even in the aftermath of this heinous sin. And rejection, rebellion. If God had been like you and I tend to be, he would have said, you know what? You don't want what I have to offer? Then out with you all. And you're done. I'll start over. I'll destroy this place and start over. But that's not who God is. That doesn't fulfill God's covenant. God is a covenant God before the foundation of the earth. When he knew he had full knowledge of how this was going to play out, God had a plan, his plan involved the fall and sin so that he might manifest his glory through redeeming that which is unworthy. Even as he's pronouncing the curse, what you have done has brought brokenness, vileness, reproachfulness upon all the beauty that I've created. And you deserve what you get. You deserve judgment. But God says, you know what? There's hope. I'm going to put enmity between you talking to the serpent and the seed of woman. What was he saying? That you're going to be scared of snakes? I don't think that's what he meant. I think that God put a barrier between that rather than us being immediately thrown onto Satan's team forever God says, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put conflict between you. And I'm going to bring redemption to that which has fallen. Satan's not winning. He hasn't won anything. He promised redemption. And then, isn't it interesting that it's at the end of the chapter when he tells us that The woman's name is Eve because she is the mother of living. There's this beautiful picture of life. Yes, death has come. The curse has come. But God says, life will reign supreme because I am king over all these things. And I'm going to win the battle. Life will reign even out of death because I'm God. Because I'm God. Yes, there's going to be shame. There's going to be guilt. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty and brokenness that we will navigate through. But I will win. Life will win. That's good news. I hope that will sustain you until next week when we can unpack it further. Right? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, maybe you've been wrestling with the gospel, I urge you today, because of the gravity, the weight of this rebellion that happened in the garden, you're in dire straits today. You stand before a holy God, right in the crosshairs of His judgment and His wrath, because He is holy and cannot tolerate sin, will not tolerate sin. But He has made a way. His Son, Christ condescended came out of heaven came to this earth lived as a man as nathan pointed out earlier as we were reading in the scripture christ became a better adam he succeeded where christ of where adam failed he went to the cross and he paid your debt your judgment your fine that was owed to god for your sin and he arose from the dead that better adam a new line a new race Able to give new life to those who put their trust in Him. Believe the gospel, repent of sin, and put all of your hope and trust on Christ today. And you don't live in chapter 3. You can live in Romans chapter 5. And for those of us who know Christ, we're we're not protected and sheltered from temptation each and every day. And there's mountains of lessons for us to learn here to war against the enemy and his work in our lives. Would you bow your head in prayer with me? Father, we thank you and bless you for the gospel. It's not the way we would have done everything, but you're God and we're not. And we trust you. What a phenomenal display of your glory that rather than giving up and vanquishing everything into non-existence and starting over and making something fresh and new that you elected to take that which was broken and in despair and redeem it and remake it. And that comes through Christ, through his sacrifice and resurrection. I pray today that, Lord, you might speak into our hearts And draw those to yourself who have never trusted in you. That today would be the day of salvation. The day of the new birth. That we become ancestors, descendants of Christ, not descendants of Adam any longer. And Lord, that you might help us all who follow Christ to follow him more diligently, faithfully each and every day. Understanding that we live in a broken world where Satan continues to tempt and seeks to lead us off course. Speak into our lives, Lord. Use us to fully glorify your name, even in this midst of brokenness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.